This is uh, now today our third in a series of four messages on a biblical view of money and finances. Here's what we've learned so far. We've been challenged not to love it. When it comes to money, don't love it. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never, never, never will I leave you. So we say with confidence, Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What a great verse that is. And then we moved on and we uh, realized and, and learned from uh, Jesus' parable of uh, the money that it's all his. It's all his. My money's not my money. My house isn't my house. My resources aren't my resources. The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all God's. It's all his stuff. And we find out that we're going to give an account to God for how we handled his stuff. That's what it means to be a steward. A steward. So that when it comes to money, we're just the FedEx men. Remember that now? We're just the FedEx men. We're just the middle people. We're just the delivery boys. That's it. Between God and what he wants to do with his stuff. And of course, last week we... uh, had a, a little living parable that we, that we did and uh, handed out money. And, and uh, again, we'd love to hear your story. Let your story be an encouragement to many other people. Please send that in. As long as these concepts, though, of stewardship are, are vague, they're not particularly helpful. For example, a preacher came to see a farmer. And he said, uh, the preacher says to the farmer, asked him actually, if you had $200... Would you give $100 to the Lord? And the farmer said, I would. The preacher said, if you had two cows, would you give one of them to the Lord? And the farmer said, I would. The preacher says, if you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? And the farmer said, now that ain't fair. You know I have two pigs. We all kind of like the idea of stewardship, don't we? As long, don't we? As long as it's kind of a vague, general concept that I can sort of say, yes, that is, that is important. I agree with that. It's his. That's right. It's his. Thank you very much. But when it gets down to the practicality of it actually being lived out in my life, that's where the rub lies. And so this morning, I want us to really get down into the, uh, the nitty-gritty of what does stewardship look like? We know the general concept. It's his. I'm the FedEx guy. But practically speaking, what does that look like in a life? And what does the Bible have to say about that? And here we are now in Jesus' parable, or not parable, but Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. And we begin in verse 19, where Jesus just very clearly tells us a few things. He says this, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is not a hard verse to break down. It's, there's something that Jesus says not to do, and then he says that there is something 
to do. First of all, the thing that we're not to do is that we are not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. Apparently, in the first century, there were a lot of people that were somewhat fixated on the gathering and the accumulation of wealth in the first century. Way back when. That's what they did. Why did they want wealth? Well, I'd imagine the same reason that that we want wealth today. The power it provides, the security it gives, the sense of self-worth that the rich can oftentimes feel. Now, wealth in the first century, though, was accumulated and was held differently than it is today. In the first century, wealth was predominantly uh, found in precious metals and in precious possessions. You might, you might think of uh, Mary of Bethany, who had the very expensive uh, thing of, of perfume and came and broke it. And that was, that's one of the ways that they stored wealth. One of the ways that they also stored wealth was in clothing. And this seems a little bit odd to us today, but that's because in, in today's culture, our fashions change so rapidly that our kids would be horrified if we, you know, if we gave them our clothing. But in the first century, that's what they did. Clothing, fashions didn't change. You just had the thing you wore. It's the same thing grandma wore and grandpa wore and great-grandma wore and great-grandpa wore. And so if you got great-grandpa's nice coat and it was in good shape, then that was really something valuable. So they would pass on their wealth through, through clothing. James uh, rebukes the, the wealthy for piling up their clothing. They would just buy garments because and, and, it was very valuable in that day. So the biggest danger that you have if your wealth is stored in clothing and in precious metals would be, first of all, a moth that would come and nest in that garment and somehow, whatever moths do, uh, destroy the garment. Its worth would be lost and the value of it would be lost. That's a big time danger. Or if you're, if you have a denarii or a silver coin or, uh, uh, something like that, and its value is because of its weight in silver. One of the big time, uh, thing problems is when that would begin to corrode and the value of that coin would be diminished. So in the first century, the things that they were afraid of were moths that would eat the clothing and rust that would corrode the value of the coins. Which, by the way, is not that much different, really, from what we deal with today, isn't it? What are people, what are we afraid of today? We're afraid of losing value. How? Through depreciation of our, our assets, whatever they might be, our house or something else, that that asset would go down in value. Something would cause it to go down. We get, oh no, it's losing value. Or um, inflation, where the money that I have is not as valuable as it once was. We have missionaries that we support there in countries where inflation is so bad, they literally have to take suitcases of money to go buy groceries. Think of that. Because that, that, piece, that, that piece of paper, it's not worth very much. That's inflation. That's what happens. We're afraid of that. Uh, or, of course, we have fear of the thief. First century, somebody could break in and steal it, and then you don't have it anymore. And today we have the same thing that goes on. There are people that want to steal our, our things, and so we lock our doors, and we have security systems in our houses, and some people have guns under their beds. You know why? Because if somebody breaks in, I don't want them to take anything that's valuable to me. And so we try to protect it. We have banks to put our money in because we want it to be protected. We want it to be safe. So they're just dealing with depreciation, inflation, and security issues. 
What we're dealing with is depreciation, inflation, and security issues. Nothing really changes. So what is Jesus' point, though, that he's making here about storing up treasure in heaven? And here it is. He says this, to store up earthly possessions is incredibly short-sighted. To be all about the accumulation of wealth in this life is incredibly short-sighted. Another example that Jesus gives on this is from Luke 12. There was this guy who was living the American dream. He had accumulated all kinds of money. He had had bumper crops. And he's sitting there just on a big old wad of cash. And he thinks to himself, hmm, I wonder what I should do now. He says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones. I want more capacity for my wealth. And then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to, I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. And I'm just going to live life. It's going to be wonderful. Now, does that sound like any, you know, anybody that, you know, maybe what they're trying to do to make enough money where they can retire at age 21. (laughs) You hear these people join our company, join our little pyramid scheme, and you'll retire by the age of 12 or something. You know, they have these advertisements and the whole thing is, boy, wouldn't it be great if you could just have enough money where you just could kick back and you don't have to do anything. That's the world that we live in. And this guy was living that dream and he really could do it. Here's the problem though. The very night that he decides to do the major expansion on the estate, he dies and God comes to him. And this is what he says. You fool. This night, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then he adds this now. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now, The store up things for himself would be the equivalent in Matthew 6 of storing up things on earth. Being rich towards God is the equivalent of storing up treasure in heaven. It's a direct correlation between those two. And the point that Jesus is making is, don't be so short-sighted to only live for this life. Don't just be about the accumulation of stuff here. Because what good are big barns and big retirement Uh, IRAs and big whatever it is that you have that is worth something. What good does it do you when you die? And the answer is it doesn't do any good at all. I said this last week. Have you ever been to the funeral of a rich man? Have you ever been to the funeral of a poor man? Do you notice any similarities of the way they look in the casket? They look exactly the same. There is no difference. When you're dead, you're dead. And all it doesn't matter how much money you had, how much you had accumulated, what you had done, once you're dead, the only thing that lasts or matters is whatever you had stored up afterwards. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but that's the point that he's making. It is foolish to simply hoard possessions and money in this life. You talk to somebody that is terminally ill, they find out that they're going to die, you've got three months to live or you've got four months to live. You know what? They don't worry about the stock market anymore. They could care less what the stock market is doing. They are not concerned about real estate values in their neighborhood. They could care less. Why? Because when you're dying or when you know that you're going to die, everything comes into clear focus, right? Guess what? We're all going to die. We are all terminal. 
There's the good news for you today. Be blessed. Be blessed in that. We are. We are all going to die. We live in this delusion, though, that that we're not going to. And so we live for this life. And Jesus is saying, don't be so short-sighted. Just live for what is today. Don't just accumulate things here. Now with that, I want to make something clear. Because oftentimes when we look at maybe one particular passage, we sort of only see that one passage. There are balancing statements in Scripture. Let's make this clear. God is not condemning the having of wealth. Doesn't condemn the rich for being rich. That is not the issue at all that is in view. He is just giving us really good advice for how to be rich in heaven. And he's saying, since this life is so short and heaven is eternal, I'm suggesting that you live to be rich there. Make sure that you're going to be rich once you step into glory. Or as Randy Alcorn said it, he said it this way. He isn't saying renounce your treasure, but simply to relocate it. He's not saying renounce your treasure. He is simply saying relocate it. And that's the second half of this verse. Don't store up things for yourself in this world. The second part is store up treasure, lay up treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust do not decay and where thieves cannot break in and steal. It's a whole different paradigm there. No moth. No rust, no thief, no identity theft, no depreciating real estate, no stock market going down, no terrorism fears, no deflation, no inflation, no thief can take anything away. That's what heavenly wealth is like. It is there. It is secure. It is the opposite of what we have in this life, and we get to have it for eternity. Lay up treasure there is what Christ is saying. And friends, I think that this may be, if there's one thing in this whole series, this might be the most important and the most sort of revolutionary for us here. This is what Christ is saying. And again, I'm quoting Alcorn. We cannot keep anything, but by giving, we can send it ahead. Let me say that again. I want everybody to get this. We don't get to keep anything. But by giving it to the Lord, we send it ahead to glory, awaiting our arrival. And this, my friends, is God's plan for the wise steward. We can take earthly treasure we don't get to keep. We can give it away. And every cent and every investment, every sacrifice that we make, God is banking it for us in glory, and it will be repaid by God in some fashion. And you can say, well, what, what, what currency do we get in heaven? I don't know. I don't. Well, what, what kind of treasure is it in glory? I don't know. I don't. But all I know is when we get there, we'll be glad that we have it. And we'll think to ourselves, wow, this is mine. And I get this for how long? Forever. Forever. Now, some of you right now are thinking, oh, wait a second. I thought, isn't hell like heaven heaven? I mean, isn't just have, being in heaven is heaven? It's heaven's, your heaven's the same as my heaven, and my heaven's the same as your heaven? No. No, it's not. And again, there's mystery to this, but there are so many passages that talk about reward in the New Testament that it's clear that there are some kind of distinctions in 
in, in glory. Now, heaven will be heaven for sure. But somehow there is a capacity for enjoying heaven and that God gives us that is somehow based on the sacrifices and the giving that we do in this life. The best analogy, and I do not have time to give this, but I'm going to give it anyway. The best analogy that I have come across is where, like here, I got this glass right here. Okay? I, and let's say I had a bigger glass right here. All right? Like a big, big thing like this. We could say that both glasses are full, aren't they? They are. But the one has more than the other. The one has a greater capacity than the other. And I think that what we're talking about here is that when we get to heaven, we're all going to be filled for sure. But based upon the love that we have for the Lord and the sacrifices that we make in this life, and by doing that, the, the, uh, the display of desires for God, there is an expansion of our soul's capacity to enjoy God in heaven that God promises that he will fill up in a way that Jesus calls treasure. So, some people arrive in glory and they get their shot glass of capacity filled by God. Welcome to heaven. There you go. And the guys like C.T. Studd and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott show up in heaven. And they got the big, you know, the big storage vat and God's just filling them up. We're all filled but our capacity somehow is greater based upon what we do in this life. And that's about as close as I can get to it. He rewards us, though. He rewards us. So the question really is, not what do you have here, but will I be rich in heaven? When I arrive in glory, am I going to find treasure there that I banked in this life? So to that end, basically, here's my goal. Can I just tell you, friends, here's my goal. I want us all to be rich when we get there. Okay? You, you don't feel bad when you go to some kind of a person that says, here's how you can make money. Okay, maybe you watch those people on TV. What's the guy that screams at the camera? Have you known the guy I'm talking about? Like Kramer, Jim Kramer or something like that. Have you seen this guy? Screams at the, at the, just screaming at the camera, giving financial advice. People watch him, apparently. I'm not screaming today, but I'm giving you really good advice. All right? I want you to be rich for eternity. How do we do that? What does stewardship look like? And uh, basically, it's going to be four things. We're only doing two of them today. Simplicity, generosity, hilarity, and eternity. Those four things. Doing simplicity and generosity first. Okay, so let's begin. Stewardship, what's it look like? Simplicity in life. Again, the Bible does not condemn having wealth, but it very much talks about what we're supposed to do with the wealth that God gives to us. Maybe nowhere, nowhere better stated than in 1 Timothy 6. Look at what it says. Command those who are rich in this present life not to be arrogant. I mean, why would he say that? Rich people arrogant? in their BMWs or whatever they're... If you drive a BMW, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> I go to Florida occasionally, and you get down there, and there's just a lot of those kind of things going on, you know, and there's just there's a little bit, the nose is in the air, okay? The nose is in the air. Rich people struggle, arrogance. Mm-hmm. 
nor to put their hope in wealth. Rich people struggle with that? Yep. Which is so uncertain. Why? It can fly away. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous, there it is, and willing to share. In this way, rich people lay up treasure for themselves, there it is, how to be rich in heaven, as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Hey, rich people, don't be haughty. Don't get your nose in the air. Don't think that because you're rich, you're better than anybody else. That's what he says. Then an important phrase, a balancing statement in verse 17. God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now that might seem to be almost to be a contradiction, you know, but I think this is the balance of it. Simplicity doesn't mean poverty. Okay? To be poor doesn't mean you're more spiritual than to be rich. It just that's not a measurement that God bases our evaluates us on. We're not talking about a kind of asceticism where, you know, we see who can be the poorest and then we kind of walk around. Then the poor people have their nose in the air. I'm poorer than you. You know. We're not talking about that. Not at all. God does give us things to be enjoyed, and to enjoy those things in the balance of simplicity is a good thing. But how are we to enjoy them? That's the issue. And this is where it helps us so much. To do good. To be rich in good deeds. Right? To be generous. And to be willing to share. That's how we enjoy the good things that God gives to us. So rich people, let me just say it again. And by the way, who's rich here? We all are. We settled that issue last week, didn't we? The poorest person here is probably in the top maybe 6% in the world. So we're the, we're, we are the rich people, all of us. Rich people, you don't get to keep it, but you can send it ahead. You can send it ahead and lay up treasure for yourself. Now for rich Christians like us here in America, simplicity means this having an eternal perspective on my lifestyle which produces a discipline, listen everybody, a discipline to live below my means. Okay, Simplicity for rich people means that I live below my means so that I have money freed up to give, to be generous. And I know this sounds very un-American because the American dream, of course, is to have more than your neighbor's. And your family, so that you feel like you've, you're more successful than they are. And if you have it, what are you supposed to do with it? Oh, you all know this. Come on. What, if you have it, what do you do with it? You flaunt it. That's right. You flaunt it. And if you don't have it, but you want to flaunt it anyway, what do you do? You go into debt, which is the American way. There just seems to be almost a personal mandate that we feel that as my, as my income increases, that my lifestyle has to increase commensurate with it. You know, John Piper says it this way, a $100,000 salary doesn't require a $100,000 lifestyle. It doesn't. As the income goes up, 
which is often the case in careers in America, what do you do with that gap? What, is, what, is, what, what kind of mandate do you feel with it? I hear people say things like this, oh, I've earned it. This is what this means. This is mine, and I deserve the increased level of living. And I would say to you, I suppose it depends on where you're talking about living. Are you talking about in in this life? Or are you talking about in eternity? Where do you want to be rich, really? Where's the wise place to be rich? In this little moment in time or in all of eternity? So just write it down. If, you're, if, if any one of us is going to be rich in heaven, we must live below our means. If we live at our means or above our means, there is no way that we can be generous. There's no way that we can obey 1 Timothy 6. We can't lay up treasure in heaven. We must have discretionary funds. So, there's only two ways to have more money. This is not profound, but it's true. One is to make more. And one is to spend less. And since most of us just can't go out and make more, what does that mean that we have to do if we're going to be generous? We have to spend less, don't we? We have to have our, our lifestyle below our income. So, and this is what I'm calling simplicity of life. Simplicity is a mindset in life. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a coupon clipping, savvy negotiating on buying something okay with used car instead of new car, money conscious but not money loving kind of simplicity living that allows us to channel funds that God, it's his money anyway, into kingdom purposes. And I would say to you that until this is done, the rest of it is like, is pointless. Okay? Simplicity in life. Could say more about that, but we don't have time. But it's the first principle in stewardship. Got it? All right. Second principle is generosity. Generosity in giving. We could make this our theme verse. I I quoted it last week. Why does God give us money? Why does He make us rich? And since we are all rich here, why 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 is He prospering us? The answer to that, 2 Corinthians 9, is you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. We are not made rich to serve ourselves. Can we agree on that? Okay. God is not bringing more income to us so that we can spend it on ourselves. It is so that we can be generous for the kingdom of God. Okay, so now let's just talk about what does that look like? Because I think right now maybe some of you are like, okay, stewardship, I like it. You know, one cow or two cows, I understand. But what, what does it really look like in life? So let's get down to where the rubber meets the road, which is the question that you're asking to yourself, well, how much am I supposed to give? Like, how do I know if I'm giving enough to God? Let's just kind of grapple with that. We'll spend a little time on this point. And we begin the discussion by talking about the biblical concept of tithe. Okay, tithe. Tithe is a Hebrew word. It just basically means tenth. Okay, tenth. It's first found in uh, Genesis 14. We studied this in Hebrews, where Abraham wins the battle and he comes back from the battle and Melchizedek, the high priest, greets him there. Abraham gives 
a tithe of 10% of everything that he got out of the battle to Melchizedek as the high priest of God. Later, Jacob promises to tithe on his uh, possessions, Genesis 28, 22. And so we see then in Genesis this basic redemptive principle that's beginning of giving a 10% portion to the Lord. And then what happens is you get to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, and God makes it the law in Israel. He does it in Leviticus 28. Here's the verse. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The first 10%. This is the biblical concept of first fruits. The first 10% is given to God. And of course, they would bring it. That's not just money. They would bring animals. They would bring uh, grain. All of these would be offerings that they would give to God. Now, the law includes other offerings. You can check those out at your own discretion, which would have brought their total giving somewhere around 23% is what the uh, average Jew in Israel would, would give. Now, some of that was to civic functions, maybe somewhat like our taxes and all that, but that's about where they would end up giving. Now, so there's the basic redemptive principle. Are you with me here? Basic redemptive principle beginning to be developed, made law by God to Israel. Well, guess what happened in the story of Israel when it came to the tithes? By the time you get to Amos, guess what people were doing? They were giving their tithes to God, but their hearts weren't in it. And God, who always is looking at our hearts, you know, says to them, what are you doing? Your hearts aren't in it. You're giving all of your money to your summer homes. What are you doing? That's Amos. Then in Malachi, it was even worse because by the time you get to Malachi, not only were their hearts not in it, they weren't giving offerings to God at all. And so here's what God says to them. Malachi chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. I wonder if we're prepared this morning to see a lack of giving to God as a form of robbery of God. I remember... I remember one of the comments that people made. It's on the on the on the website, you know, with the ten dollars. He said it was the, it's the heaviest ten it's the heaviest bill in my billfold. That's what he said. Feels like a million dollars. Why? Because it's God's money. Now imagine that guy taking that and 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 buying himself, you know, a, a movie ticket or or uh, some you know little trinket for himself. Okay, would we call that robbing God? And yet, if we look at all of our money as being God's and recognize that God has a right to it. To not give it to him, I do believe, is robbing God. And I told you last week, all the survey, the surveys say that 40% of evangelical Christians give absolutely nothing to the Lord. And my heart is heavy today. Because I know that in this room right now that we have people sort of grappling with this in their minds and thinking to themselves, boy, how big a deal is this? I would submit to you that in God's eyes, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. They didn't give to God and God called it robbery. 
So we have this redemptive principle developing. It's made law. The people of Israel don't fulfill it ultimately. God is very upset with them. Then we get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, when it comes to the tithe, it is implicitly, implicitly condoned by Christ in Matthew 23, 23. But there is no explicit description of the tithe anywhere after the Gospels. Acts through Revelation, there is nothing about tithing in any of those books. And yet there are whole chapters on giving uh, that, are, that are there. So what this has done is this leads to a debate amongst people as to whether or not tithing is for today. Are Christians today obligated to tithe to God? Well, Jesus affirms it, but the apostles don't mention it. Here is what the apostles do mention, though. It's the whole concept of grace giving. Here's the passages. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, But just as you excel in everything, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Grace giving. And an example of grace giving is what the Macedonian church did. And Paul now writes about what they did in 2 Corinthians 8, 3. He says this, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Grace giving. Now why is it called grace giving? Because as Christians, anything that we do is by God's grace, isn't it? Even the desire to do it in the first place is, is, is God's grace to us. Otherwise, we'd be living selfishly like everybody else. But God's grace has been poured out in our heart. And now our desires have changed. And so we are, we are becoming more and more generous. And the result of that is every gift that I give is a grace gift. It is God's grace in me now on display in the gift that I give. The Macedonians did grace giving. And it's described as giving beyond their ability. Now, if you want to argue that the tithe is Old Covenant, and only Old Covenant, as some kind of an excuse to give less than what they did in the Old Testament, the New Testament concept of grace giving means that everybody gives beyond what they're capable of giving. And I wonder, in America, what percentage would that be? And I think therein lies the dilemma when it comes to this whole discussion of tithing. Do I believe that tithing is a rule that God has an effect? I would say to that, yes and no. Tithing as a basic redemptive principle gives us a baseline for beginning our giving to God, but not ending it. I would submit to you that tithing is just a starting point. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a place to get going on. In our context, uh, in America, do I believe that if you are not giving 10% that you are robbing God? In the richest country in the world, and the richest Christians that have ever lived? I would say yes. Yes, you are. Now, there might be some extraordinary circumstance that maybe would mitigate that statement, but in general, I would say that that is the case. Now, some of you right now are feeling all smug, aren't you? Well... I'm good with God then. I've given 10% since I was a kid. If you give 10%, does that mean that, that God's all happy with you? Well, I don't know. That would all depend. And that's one reason that I really hesitate to say that this is a rule. And here's why. I just want to I have it on the, on, the, on the PowerPoint. Here's why. 
If you don't make it a rule, people who love money don't start there. If you do make it a rule, legalists stop there. And so I don't really want to make it a rule, lest the people that, that, that love money uh, don't start. I didn't say that right. I don't want to make it a rule, or, or, or I'm not even saying this even good, and I don't have time to even try to say it. I'll just stick with what I have on the screen there. So if you love money, then 10% is kind of like, wow, I can't believe it. Okay? I can't believe it. But if you're a legalist here, don't think that just because you do that you're all good with God. And that's where I think this concept of grace giving is so important. I've rarely heard anybody argue against the tithe where I didn't really get the sense that they're trying to justify giving less. And I would suggest to you, that's not a very good argument to do it because the only other option is whatever percentage giving beyond your ability would be. And I would say to you, in America, giving beyond our ability is way higher than 10%. So I'm very comfortable with tithing language. I don't mind it at all because it gives us a starting point, especially for new believers. I mean, think of, think of somebody that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They have not thought about this at all. And now you're, we're having offerings. They're kind of like, hey, what, what's this all about? What should I be doing? It's very helpful to say, you know what? There's a, there's a basic redemptive principle here to get you going of 10% to the Lord. It's all his, okay? But 10% to the Lord. And they're like, oh, okay, well, at least it's a place I can get going. Or young people that are growing up and we talk to them about tithing or, or giving to God. It's a great place for somebody who's getting going to begin that concept. And parents, by the way, I would encourage you, start when they're young. If they get a dollar, um, uh, what's it called, a dollar allowance, then make it clear to them that 10 cents goes to God. Because when they're making minimum wage, it's not going to be scary for whatever minimum wage, 10% of minimum wage. And then when they are in their first job, they've created the habit and the discipline of giving to God. If you're young people and you say, oh, I'll give, but I'm going to wait until I have money to do it. No, you won't. Every study shows the more that we have, the less that we give. So start now, start young. I'm thankful for parents that did that in my life. So a nice, succinct, like getting going with money biblically would be this. Take the first 10% that God gives you and give it back to him. Take the next 10%, put it in savings, and live off the 80%. And by the way, the 80% is his too. Okay, It's his too. That's the other mistake that people make. Well, now the 80%, I can do whatever I want to with it. No, not necessarily. It's God's as well. We're to be stewards of that. And if you're here... I I just think of some of, no doubt there's some people here right now, and this whole thing is like new, and you think to yourself, wait a second, I'm not so sure about this. Why are we talking about this? This is why we teach the Bible. I mean, if we all understood everything and had already arrived, then there'd be no point in us coming together at all. But we haven't arrived, and this is something new, and this is something that God would have for each of us. So I think it's just something to pray about. And to my more mature Brothers and sisters that are here, I would suggest to you that by now, most of us should have gone beyond tithing giving and be solidly in the grace giving category. So take a moment right now. Let's just get very practical. Most of us are in the midst of doing taxes, so these numbers are all sort of fresh in our minds right now. What was your household income last year? Take a moment. Get that number in your mind. What was your household income last year? 
The nice thing about 10% is it's easy to figure. Move the decimal over one. Okay? And that represents the starting point. Okay? Now, let me ask you this question. Are you richer in heaven as a result of what you did this last year than you were one year ago? How well did you do in banking for eternity? What is your plan for the coming year? Have you thought about it? Generosity to God. Not honor, not robbing Him, but honoring Him. And I would say to you, you know, this, is, this gets kind of challenging when you, when you really get thinking about it. An example from my own life, I sold a house this year. I made a little bit of money off of the sale of the house. And uh, much later, I didn't even think about it, but much later all of a sudden I'm like, do I need to give out of that too, you know? What about those stocks that go up and you sell? What about the dividends? What about the increase in assets? Is it just the salary that you receive or is it all of the giving that God gives to us? And I would submit to you, the real question is, how rich do you want to be in heaven? I want you to be very rich there. So lay up treasure in heaven. All right, now there's some enemies of generosity that I want to talk about with you. Enemies of generosity. Things that are going to get in the way of us ever honoring God with our money. I've just got two today. Here's the biggie, though. Any guesses on what it might be? I think I hear debt over here to the side. That's exactly right. Debt is an enemy to generosity. Romans 13.1, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Proverbs 22.7, the borrower is the slave of the lender. Now let's identify what kind of debt we're talking about here. Okay, somewhat true for all debt, but in particular, the debt that in America we get on depreciating items, it is complete insanity. Okay? An item that is going down in value and you're paying interest on top of the going down in value is not wise financial stewardship. Things like TVs and cars and furniture. Debt on a home is different, isn't it? A home is typically an appreciating item. So I think we can look at that differently. Or debt to start a company is different. Why? Because there's income that's coming by starting the company. But it's this debt on depreciating things that kills us. The average American spends 25% of his income on debt. 25%. Now, you tell me why we, uh, we struggle to be generous to the Lord when we're spending 25% of our income to service things that we have purchased. I would suggest to you that's insanity. Don't do it. In fact, here's a principle for you. Never make a financial decision that would cause you to rob God. If you're looking at that item or that thing or whatever it is and you're wondering, hmm, would God have me buy it? Hmm. If buying that thing would cause you to not be able to be generous to the Lord, it's not his will for you to have it. Don't do it. Wait. He can create the circumstances. Somebody could give it to you. Okay. Wait. Never rob God. 
yet I believe many of us do. I got good advice years ago. Well, here's the, this is not biblical, but it's just good advice. No debt on depreciable items. No debt on depreciable items. If God's people would simply follow that basic little principle, billions of dollars would be freed up in America for kingdom purposes. So wait until you can pay cash for it. If you don't have enough money for it, maybe that's an indication from God that he doesn't think you should have it. Because if you had enough money for it, or if he wanted you to have it, he could certainly provide the means for you to do so without going into debt. Let's take the average newlywed couple. Okay? Newlywed couple. Uh, Ken and Laura, you guys can listen in on this. This is for you, all right? Newlywed couple, they, they, uh, they get married. And inevitably, one of them brings debt into the relationship. Student loans or a car or credit cards or something like that. So in they come. Now they're married. And they have debt that they bring into the relationship. They have a nice wedding and a honeymoon, which these days is oftentimes running like big dollars, like $25,000, I think, was the number I heard for like the average wedding, most of that to the minister's honorarium. Uh, (laughs) But they think to themselves, it's a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Let's just blow it. Let's just go crazy here. And so they spend all of this money, more debt. Then they get home, but hey, they both got a job. So it seems like they have a lot of money, doesn't it? And there they are. We've got lots of cash flow. And you know what? It'd be really nice to have our own place. And so they go to the bank. And the bank says, what's your income? It's this. And they're like, oh, man, man you, can, you can get a mortgage this big. And they're all like, wow, then we get a house like that. Wouldn't that be great? And so they get the big mortgage. And uh, now they have payments on their car. They have payments on their house. They have school loans. Their wedding is still being paid for. But they've got to have cable TV. And then they have all of the other expenses. And all of their money is going to simply service debt. And I would say to you, it is money down the drain. Guess what happens next? Oh, we have an exciting little announcement. <laughs> little, little Kenny is coming along. Yay. Oh no. Now we're going to lose one of the income or maybe he or she loses her job. And then what happens? Everything becomes tight and money becomes a huge issue in the marriage. And that dream that they had has now become a nightmare. And the reason it became a nightmare, unwise stewardship. Don't do it. Young people, let me just say to you, the financial decisions that you make between the ages of 20 and 35 will largely determine your financial future and the ability that you have to be generous to God, which, by the way, is the ability that you have to bank for heaven. In other words, the decisions that you make as a young person will determine not just the way that you live in this life, but also the way that you live in the next life. And unfortunately, young people haven't figured the financial thing out yet. And so oftentimes they dig themselves into this big hole and they spend the rest of their life trying to get out from it. Don't do it. Can I just say to you, we don't care what kind of car you drive. You buy the oldest clunker on the lot, we're going to love you the same. We're not impressed by the new car. We're not depressed by the old one. Buy an old car. Live simply. Get ahead financially. Pay cash for things. You know, I think for some of us, the greatest act of obedience that we could do to God this afternoon would be to go home and turn our oven up to around 400 degrees. Turn it up, let it preheat. Ding, 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 ding. 400 degrees. Then get out a cookie cookie, uh, uh, pan. Pan? 
and sheet, thank you, a cookie sheet. And get every credit card that you have, place them very systematically on the cookie sheet, and then cook those little demons to hell. I'm telling you, that would be an act of faith and obedience for many of us. If you are carrying balances on your credit card month to month, I'm here to tell you that you lack discipline. Get rid of them to the glory of God. And of course, the real enemy in this is not the debt. What is it? It's the lack of self-control. The desire to have the desire to keep up appearances. I wonder if maybe we could possibly be an American church that isn't impressed with what each other has. Could we be that kind of church? Now, we won't judge each other for having it, but we also won't admire each other for having it. It just doesn't matter. It's just something that's going to burn anyway, whatever it is. So we're like, oh yeah, okay. There's your house, there's your car. You know. It's all going to burn. Don't say that to each other. It's kind of depressing, but it's true. I think of John, I think of John Wesley. You know, uh, he had this house, and one day this man comes riding up to him frantically, John Wesley, John Wesley, your house has just burned down. His response was this, good. That was God's house, and now I have one less thing to worry about. And on he was with his ministry. Here's what I'm saying. Let's be impressed with what impresses Jesus. And one day Jesus was sitting there, and a widow came with two mites, And she placed those two mites and gave them to God. And Jesus Christ was impressed by that. Why? Because she gave out of her poverty. She gave out of faith. She knew that God would meet her needs. And she was generous. Let's be impressed with that. And here's the second thing. And i got to fly here. But here's the second thing. Is what I just call laziness and financial foolishness. What keeps us from being generous? laziness and stupidity what am i talking about that's stupidity's a little strong young people i foolishness is a good bible word let's go with that <laughs> stewardship does not mean laziness capitalism works because people want things that's what drives our entire economy so they're they're wanting treasure on earth the christian steward though is also motivated to accumulate But he has an entirely different reason for doing it. And I would submit to you that the Christian ought to have a greater desire to accumulate than the non-Christian could or should. We should strive to make as much money as we reasonably can. I would say Christians ought to be the best workers in any business. Why? Because I want to prosper. I want to do well. But what is my motive in it? My motive is I want to crank up the income so I can have greater funds that I can give away and bank for eternity. That's what I want to do with it. Again, Wesley, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And wealth is not bad. Wealth provides wonderful opportunities for blessing. So get wealthy. Make a lot of money. But make sure your motive in doing it is right. I would also say to you this, we need to be, God's people need to be wise with their money, not foolish. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, but guess what? Caesar gives tax breaks. Think about those. 
Position your money to maximize those. It's all good. Like the, the master in Jesus' story, he gets after the one servant. He says, couldn't you have at least put this on deposit with interest? We need to think about what we do with our money for maximum profitability. But the real question is, what is my motive in doing it? Is this for me or is this for God? And I'm just going to add one more little foolishness thing. We've got to conquer the desires that drive foolish spending. For example, have you ever heard somebody say, I, I, drove, past, I drove through the car lot, and there it was. And it spoke to me, actually. <laughs> and it said, you must have me. And who am I to deny what the car said to me? And people buy, you know, they drive through the lot and they just buy a car, you know. Or they're, they're walking through something and they see it and they just buy the thing, you know. Impulsive spending, money just going out the window for basically things that we really don't need. And then not being able to be generous to the Lord. I would submit to you our basements and garages are testimonies to how much junk we waste money on. Rusting, dusty, losing value, garage sale bound items. Christians, don't buy things you can't afford and don't buy things you don't need. That's simplicity in life. I wonder if Jesus could have given an illustration of what it meant to store up treasure in heaven if the average American basement wouldn't be what he would illustrate. All right. Well, we're out of time. But I just want to say this to you. Our motive as leaders, and my motive here this morning, is for your good. I, don't, I say these things out of love to you. I want you to be rich in heaven. That's what I want. For us to get there and for you to say, you know what, Steve? I am so glad that you gave that sermon in February 2006. Do you remember that sermon? I'm so glad that you gave that because of what the, the difference that it made in my life. And now I get to enjoy this for eternity. That's what I want to hear. And so take my words. Apply them. I don't know your situations. I don't know your spending habits. I don't know how you're investing your money. I don't know what you're giving. But God does. And I think if you open your heart to him and say, Lord, I want to submit every aspect of my life to your lordship. I want to honor you in it. That he might just lead in some pretty exciting directions. For our church. I mean, think of all the things that we did with $10 last week. Imagine if he had all of our money, what God could do. I pray that he does that. Let's stand together. Well, Father, I just want to pray a final prayer of benediction here. Lord, whenever we talk about money, I know that we get a little bit anxious, we get a little squirrely. We maybe even get suspicious. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just wipe all that away. It doesn't matter anyway. We're all going to die. And I pray that we would have that kind of eternal perspective and that it would lead us to a kind of generosity that honors you and speaks to a lost world that we really do believe that you are our greatest treasure. So help us not to bury it. Help us to bank it for eternity. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.